Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 35. Last week, I wrapped up the places found in Joshua 19, at least those assigned to the tribe of Dan. I then embarked on covering the city of Lashem, where the Danites relocated after being unable to capture and control their allotted land. Lashem would be renamed after the tribe, a name it still has today. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm circling back to Joshua 19 and pushing forward. And with that, let's get started. Next up in Joshua is the land given to the book's author and namesake. According to the text, when they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the Israelites gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, son of Nun. He asked for a specific place, Timnath Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim. When he settled there, he rebuilt the town. Which, of course, gives me one last place to cover in Joshua 19. Timnath Sarah, later shortened to simply Thamna, is widely known from its association with Joshua. In ancient Hebrew, its name translates to either the phrase extra portion or portion of abundance. A similar name, which may be a transliteration, translates to portion of the sun. So, the portion part is consistent. What's less clear is what it's a portion of. Though, all of the suggestions do impart the feeling that it was a portion of a blessing. As for that last translation, in the text, it's rendered as Timnath Harris and can be found later in Joshua, at least in the footnotes of the NIV, a footnote that also points the reader to Judges 2, which, in all three versions I used for the podcast, give a name that translates to the portion of the sun. There's the alternate translation of Harris as earthenware, may be referring to fruits in the area being as dry as earthenware prior to the arrival of Joshua. I don't know. That seems a bit of a stretch. As for the sometimes mention of the sun as the name of the town Joshua would rebuild, there is the speculation that that part of the name is related to him commanding that star to hold its place in the sky while the Israelites battled the allied Amorite kings. The mid-3rd century B.C. Greek Septuagint version of the book of Joshua records that Joshua placed in this town the stone knives with which he had circumcised the children of Israel. I'll just leave those artifacts alone. The town was located in the mountainous region of Ephraim, thought to be north of Mount Gosh. As for this mountain, it was mentioned several times in the text sometimes as a place described as having torrent valleys, which may refer to ravines in the area. A rugged land. There have been a few places somewhat identified as the place, but nothing conclusive. More on one of those in a minute. All of these towns are on the west bank of the Jordan. William F. Albright identified the town later as Thamna which was also mentioned in Greek and Roman writings about the region, most prominently in the history recorded by Josephus. Eusebius wrote that Joshua's town was on the slopes of Mount Gosh and near the village of Thamna. So whichever early A.D. writer you go with, 
It was likely at least near this town. As for that place, Thamna, it was an administrative district in the region for the Roman Empire. Joshua would be buried in one of these cities. It's thought that his contemporary Caleb would be buried there too. One of the possible cities thought to be the place where Joshua lived is the modern small village of Kilf Harris. This is a predominantly Palestinian village in the northern West Bank, about four miles, six kilometers west of Salfit. This place is at about 20 miles, 31 kilometers west of the Jordan River, roughly halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, and about the same distance due north of Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The only reason I'm covering this city is that it has the purported tombs of both Joshua and Caleb to the point that Joshua's speculated tomb is a tourist attraction. In a Samaritan tradition, recorded by Westerners in 1877, the tombs of both Joshua and Caleb are here. This can actually be traced to Joshua chapter 24, which says he was buried in the city where he settled. But there's a couple missing pieces in order for the connection to be solid. Specifically, the cities of Timnath Sarah and Kalf Harris must be the same, and the building housing the tomb would have had to survive over 3,000 years. But that isn't enough doubt to stop the thousands who annually make the pilgrimage to the tombs on the 26th of Nisan, the day it was recorded that he died. Nisan is the seventh civil month and first religious month of the Jewish calendar. As for the outside record, pottery fragments dating as far back as the Middle Bronze Age have been uncovered there. This is roughly the same period when Joshua would have been setting up his home. Without much interruption, artifacts have been found from that date to nearly every period since, up through the Ottomans and the British Mandate that followed. Backing up a bit, it was in 1517 that the village was brought into the Ottoman Empire, at the same time that the greater region was made part of the Istanbul-based country's expansion. In 1596, the city appeared in Ottoman tax registers as being a subdistrict of Jabal Kabal, which itself was part of the nearby Nablus. At that time, Kaf Harris was a rather small town, with only 54 households, all of them noted as being Muslim. Like many of the regional cities I've covered recently, the residents paid their taxes on revenues, in this case on the production gleaned from goats and beehives. In the early 19th century, Edward Robinson would make note of the city, but had little to say about it, not even remarking that it was the potential resting place of Joshua. What this likely means is that he never heard that story, or more likely didn't buy into it. About half a century later, more specifically in 1817, the French explorer and amateur archaeologist Victor Guerin remarked that the small village had beautiful plantations of figs and olives. He estimated the population to be around 600, without remarking if he was only counting adults or males or the total. Either way, it appears to have slowly grown since the first Ottoman tax records. At the time, and nearby, there were the ruins of an undated watchtower constructed from large, well-cut stones. 
Also uncovered were two broken marble columns built into the wall of the mosque. These columns also remain undated. The British would take over in the early 20th century, following the defeat of the Ottomans in World War I. They noted a smaller population than before, but still all Muslim. A study in 1945 showed an increasing population, but more interesting, at least to me, were over 1,000 acres, just north of 400 hectares, devoted to agriculture, with over half that amount for grains. Unlike most of the recent areas I've covered, following the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, Kilf Harris would become part of the country of Jordan, a country it would remain part of for close to 20 years, at least until the 1967 Six-Day War, when the Israeli army would gain the territory for their country. After this conflict, the population remained vastly Muslim, but to this day Jewish pilgrims make the trek to Joshua's tomb, usually accompanied by Israeli military guards, or at least with the military playing a coordinating role. There have been many escalating actions from both Palestinians and Israelis over the past couple decades, all leading to and part of the instability that seems to reign supreme in this region. And that's it for Kilf Harris, the purported city of Joshua, moving along. All of this gets me to the relatively short Joshua chapter 20 which rehashes what is known about the Levitical cities of refuge. I've touched on these before, but as a reminder, these are a handful of places that an accused murderer could flee to, hoping to receive justice. But it just wasn't any murderer that would qualify for protection, from the text. It was only for anyone who killed a person without intent or by mistake who could flee there, to take refuge from an avenger. The murderer was to escape to one of these cities and stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain the case to the elders of that city. And this particular requirement was a bit more descriptive than what had been provided for in the Pentateuch. Back in the text, the fugitive was to be taken into the city and given a place to stay and was to remain with the elders. If the avenger was in pursuit, the elders were not allowed to turn the murderer over if the killing had indeed been unintentional. The accused was to remain in that city until there was a trial before the congregation, and after that, assuming the finding was in favor of the defendant, the person was to remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest at the time. After the high priest died, Only then could the manslaughterer return to their home. Yet another case where timing was everything. Before getting to the actual cities, there is something worth noting. The Masoretic text for this part of the narrative includes the part about the death of the high priest, while the Septuagint does not mention this requirement. What I could not find was how long that version required the now-absolved killer to stay in the city. Since the length of time was not mentioned, the implication is that they could return home immediately, or perhaps after things had cooled down. In the next paragraph, the six cities of refuge are listed out. I've covered a few of these in prior episodes, so for now, the ones that haven't come up yet. 
First up is Golan, which you probably recognize from the oft-mentioned region known as the Golan Heights, located to the east of the Sea of Galilee. Modernly, meaning the past couple of decades or so, this area has been controlled by the nation of Israel, mostly, though a bit of the region is within the boundaries of Syria. It's also a region of much strife on both sides of the border. The part in Israel, which makes up about two-thirds of the heights, is the nearly constant location of skirmishes, sometimes more, between Israeli forces and Palestinians. The Syrian side has been mired in an extended, ongoing civil war. But I'm not covering the heights, at least not today. Instead, I'm focusing on the city, since it was named in Joshua 20 as a city of refuge. In the Old Testament, Golan is within the territory assigned to Manasseh. Prior to this, and well back in the text, it had been part of Bashan, and in a broader context, it was conquered by the Israelites from the Amorites. As for the cities of refuge, three were east of the Jordan, meaning that three were west. Of the three east, Golan was located the furthest north. Apparently, not much happened there, as after Joshua, it was only mentioned in First Chronicles, and this passage was essentially a reiteration of what's found in Joshua. And that's it in the text. There's just a bit more in the outside record, so this should only take a couple of minutes. Of course, in the Old Testament period, the history of the city would follow that of the region in general. The judges, the uniting of Israel, then the splitting of the kingdom, followed by the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, and finally the Greek Seleucids. As the Seleucids began to wane, losing control over the region, in the case of Golan, it began to be occupied by semi-nomadic Arabs. It would eventually get controlled by the Hasmoneans, then the Nabataeans. This after the Hasmonean leader, Alexander Janius, was ambushed by King Obadiz I of the Nabataeans. It would finally get back to the Hasmoneans in the 1st century BC. But this didn't last for long, as in 63 BC, the region was conquered by Roman general Pompey, with Golan being settled by the Iturians. These were semi-nomads thought to be Aramean though some believed they were Arab. In 23 BC, the one and only King Herod the Great, which is a bit overselling his position as he was a client king to Rome. Anyway, he was given control over the greater Golan region. His heirs would maintain that control until the death of Agrippa II at the end of the 1st century AD meaning Herod and offspring ruled the region when Christ and the disciples walked in the same region. When the Romans controlled it, Golan was considered part of Judea, though there are a few that think it could have been part of the province of Phoenix. Golan was the eastern boundary of Galilee and was part of the region controlled by Philip in the 3rd century AD. The 1st century AD Roman historian Josephus along with the two centuries later writer Eusebius, wrote of the town, but not much, and neither really didn't describe the location. Except that Eusebius wrote it was a large village that gave its name to the surrounding country. 
The Talmud mentions a town named Gablana, which, when pronounced in ancient Hebrew, is really close to Golan. So, maybe. In the Talmud, the name is also really close to the region in general, just like its use in the modern sense. Archaeologists think that they have identified the place, and there have been uncovered what either date to late Roman or early Byzantine ruins, though these would then date to well after the book of Joshua. These ruins are not far from what's known as the Daughters of Jacob Bridge, and because I may never get to that place again, I'll get to it in a few minutes. In the late 19th century, American archaeologist Gottlieb Schumacher described the minimal finds as being little more than a desert ruin with no visible remains of importance, but the appearance of great antiquity. In my words, they were small and old, and not much more. As the first millennium A.D. progressed, the city seemed to prosper, especially as it turned from the previous native religions, think polytheism, to Christianity. There is some thought that in this time, and even more so after the Romans morphed into the Byzantines, many of the Arabs from the earlier pre-Roman period remained, and now had settled, serving as guards on the frontier against the potential for both invading forces and marauders. There was also a sizable Jewish presence in the city in that period, too. Some think the Arabs eventually became the Palestinians, and the Jewish residents aren't far removed from those who live in the region today. So, the current conflict is far older than it may initially seem. After the Byzantines, it would follow the history of the region in general, until the Ottomans fell to the Allies in World War I. It would then become part of the French Mandate, and eventually part of Syria, where it remained until the 1967 Six-Day War. And that's it for the city of Golan, at least what remains of it. Next up is what I teased earlier, the Daughters of Jacob Bridge, which crosses the Jordan River at what's known as Jacob's Ford. This place is on the upper Jordan River, south of Mount Hermon and north of the Sea of Galilee. Where Jacob's Ford crosses the legendary river is between the Golan Heights and the Upper Galilee region. Throughout history, there have been several bridges at this location, and the specific one named after Jacob's daughters dates to just after the Crusader period, when the region was controlled by the Muslims. Before the bridge was built, and as the name alludes to, the river was forded, weighted on foot, in what was normally a shallow crossing, at least when it wasn't flood season. And I'll clear up one thing really quickly. More than likely, it wasn't where Jacob crossed the Jordan as he returned to Canaan. That event probably occurred south of the Sea of Galilee. But a naming mistake was made way back in history and that name has stuck. Despite this naming mistake, this part of the river has served as a crossing point for thousands of years. It was part of an ancient trade route that ran all the way from Morocco to China, thousands and thousands of miles. On a smaller scale, the route ran between the port of Acre and Damascus. The archaeological record goes far, far back, so far back that dating is difficult, 
This shouldn't be surprising, as freshwater combined with lush natural vegetation tended to attract wildlife and people. It may even be where man first learned to tame fire, or invented fire, however that works. But good luck to anyone attempting to prove that happened anywhere specific. Charred remains tend not to last very long. They're organic, after all. In the late Mamluk period, the very nearby town of Safad rose to prominence partly due to the postal road that ran from Cairo to Damascus. To aid in the moving of goods and mail, a steep stone arch bridge was built. The actual foundation of the bridge was what was left of a crusader castle built in a failed attempt to keep the Muslims from driving the Europeans back home. Near the bridge, and maybe even as part of it, sometime shortly before 1444, a merchant constructed an inn with the central courtyard on one side of the river. Such buildings were locally known as a caravansera. I covered such lodgings when I touched on the Good Samaritan parable a few weeks back. The dating of this inn, the one over the Jordan at Jacob's Ford, was somewhat confirmed by Edward Robinson in the mid-19th century. He also noted the importance of the bridge on the local economy. He likely even rented a room in the inn. Circling back, about a century after the inn was built, Ottoman records show for the first time that a toll was collected for crossing the bridge. But the toll was likely well before then. This was just the first record of it. The bridge would also mark the furthest advance of Napoleon in his Middle Eastern campaigns when he attempted to hold off the Ottomans in the region in 1799. Napoleon would hold the bridge, preventing Ottoman forces from crossing. This allowed him to operate with less resistance to the west of the Jordan River and further south, all of this occurring during his Egyptian campaign. The bridge came crashing down, at least partially, in World War I, when retreating Ottoman forces blew it up to prevent the pursuing Brits from chasing them further into their own territory. It was quickly repaired, a process that also made it less steep and more suitable for modern vehicles. Then, in 1934, as part of the draining of Lake Hula, and after nearly 500 years of use, the old bridge was replaced by a modern one a little further south. About a decade later, in June 1946, in what's known as the Night of the Bridges that I mentioned a few episodes ago, the new bridge was destroyed by Jewish rebels. After the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, it would become part of a demilitarized zone established by the Armistice Agreement that ended the conflict. The bridge remains in this small no-man's land through today, and that's the misnamed Daughters of Jacob Bridge, which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the remaining, yet-to-be-covered cities of refuge. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. 
Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.